We've been going through a series in the last number of weeks called The Story of God. And what we wanted to be able to do with this series is uh, show how the Bible is not simply a collection of a bunch of interesting stories and parables and uh, history, but there's actually, uh, if you want a, a fancy word, a meta-narrative, a, a big picture that ties together all of Scripture. And so we've been trying to take different parts of Scripture and show how they are integrated into this bigger story, this umbrella idea. And so we've made it through the Old Testament, the time before Jesus, and now we're looking at the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at young Jesus today. Now, I want to encourage you, for those of you who are on the email list, if you're not, just go to the Connection Center, they'll help you with that. But we have actually developed, Pastor Matt has developed a Bible reading plan that coincides with the sermons. And so I've been going through it and just absolutely loving it. It's just so great to, uh, to just kind of get this uh, 30,000 foot view of scripture and go through it in quite a rapid way, but it seems to just tie everything together in a remarkable way. And so I encourage you, if you haven't already started to do that, uh, you can go online. It'll be easy for you to sign up. To give a backdrop to today, before we look at the life of Jesus, we want to look again at this drawing that we have, looking at the pattern for, uh, for what this biblical journey is that we see over and over again in Scripture. The, uh, we see that the, not only was Abraham going through this journey, but most notably we see the people of Egypt, uh, people of Israel rather, going from Egypt, having the Passover, where the Passover lamb is... Uh, is killed and there's the, the shedding of blood which forecasts Jesus' salvation put over the doorpost so that the angel of death doesn't uh, destroy them. Then they go through a baptism experience through the Red Sea and then again through the Jordan River and then they spend time in the desert, 40 years in fact. And it's the place where they receive the law of God. Now the law of God is not meant to be a rule book. It's meant to be a description of what a healthy relationship with God and with one another would look like. And so as they enter the, into that promised land, they're given instruction for how to have healthy relationships. They don't do super well with that. That's why it takes them 40 years to get out of the desert. And then they go into a season of war. And for us, that's a season of mission where we spread the love of God across the nations. Uh, Jesus goes through this exact same journey. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, uh, Jesus is described in all of the scriptures. We see this journey setting the stage for the life of Jesus. So what was said in all of scripture? Well, what we want to do today is trace this journey and overlap it with the journey of Jesus that he went through during his time here on earth. And it begins with Egypt. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, so this is after he's born, and uh, this is what said, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, his father, in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you for Herod, which is the king at that time, is going to search for the child to kill him. 
So what does God do with his children in the Old Testament? He sends them to Egypt during a time of drought. What does he do with this child? Sends him to Egypt because of the slaughter that Tara was talking about earlier. And then we see that Jesus goes through a Passover in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. So again, Jesus doing the exact same thing that the children of Israel did. And then he goes through his baptism experience. In Matthew 3, verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. So this isn't some random place that he thought to be baptized. It's much more than that. It's the exact same river that the people of Israel went through to enter into the promised land. It was their baptism experience, and so it is Jesus's. He went to the Jordan to be baptized by John, who is kind of considered to be the last of the prophets of the time before Jesus, and he was announcing the coming Messiah and King. And then, of course, you know what happens after the baptism? Into the desert. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. We won't go through all that. But it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. Now it's happening to Jesus. And after, after fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So the 40, he did better than the people of Israel. They were 40 years. He was 40 days. But still going through the exact same process as the children of Israel. The number 40. He did much better. He was faithful to the law. Faithful to this covenant that was given them. Because when the devil came to tempt him in the desert, this is what he says over and over again in, uh, in Matthew chapter 4. He says, it is written. And he shows himself faithful. Now, if you look at each time he's tempted, the scripture verse that he uses to fight against the devil with are all taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy was the book that was given to the children of Israel when they were in the desert. And so they were given this book in order to withstand the attack of the enemy and to walk in faithful love with their father, but they didn't do that. But what we see in Jesus when he's in his desert experience, he uses that exact same book to defeat the enemy and to show himself faithful to his father in heaven. And then comes the mission. In Matthew chapter 4, immediately after this testing period, Matthew 4 verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Remember what we've said. What's the grand uh, conclusion of the story? Is the coming of the kingdom of God to earth. And so it was forecasted or imagined first in the promised land. And now Jesus is coming to establish that king, that kingdom in a much greater and profound dynamic. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So this kingdom that God has been uh, establishing since the beginning of time, localized in Israel, he now sends his son to Israel and is now the better king. All those other kings that we talked about before, they didn't do very well. Some of them were faithful to God, others weren't but it didn't go well for Israel. And so now they have a better king who's still in that lineage, that family that God has always been working through, 
But now this is the king who will fulfill the covenant with God and be that better king to uh, welcome the kingdom of God to earth and to give us a way to enter in. Therefore, Jesus fulfills Israel's history. The fulfillment, as it says in Luke 24, the fulfillment of all that God was wanting to do is now fulfilled through Jesus. But here's what I'd like to focus on just for a minute, is to notice how he fulfills it. When we look through the Old Testament, what we mostly find when we have this kingdom imagery of God establishing his rule on earth, it's a military imagery where people who are rebellious against God are unwilling to engage in a healthy relationship with God and right relationship with him. They break that relationship, break that covenant. They sin, rebel against God. And so the penalty for that was military. That they overran those nations that were rebellious against God and set up a, supposedly, it was going to be a better nation, the nation of Israel. What we find now with this better king is not a military response to the expansion of God's kingdom, but something very different. He comes not as a military ruler, but as a faithful son. And this reveals the core element of what the kingdom of God is built on. Not on violence, but on sonship. In right relationship with our Father in heaven. In John 8, 28, which is just, he uh, repeats this, Jesus repeats this over and over again through the book of John. And it's just, it's just overwhelming to me. Here you have Jesus being the Son of God, God in the flesh. He is fully God, born of the Virgin Mary. He needed to be born of a virgin to show that he is not from the seed of humanity, but from the seed of God. He is the living God come in human flesh. And so here you have fully God, and this is how he talks. Uh, just pick out one verse to describe this. In John 8, 28, it says, I do nothing on my own authority. This is the living God on earth, and he says, I don't do anything on my own initiative, but speak just as the Father taught me. You have the living God who characterizes all he says and does as a response to his heavenly father. What this tells us is the way that the kingdom of God will come to earth is not through military violent force, but it comes through a son being responsive to his father. What a radical message of kingdom expansion. Who's ever heard of this in the history of the world? If, you're, if you want to grow your kingdom, what's the first thing that you're going to do? Is you're going to get yourself an army. And the size of that army will determine the size of your success. And now we have a different leader coming in an entirely different attitude and spirit. That the way I'm going to establish my kingdom on earth is by being responsive to my father and extending that kingdom through his love. 
Now here's where it gets interesting as it applies to us. So in Mark verse, uh, chapter one, verse 17, it says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The invitation, what it means to be a Christian, it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what the word means. We're followers of Christ. So when Jesus says, come follow me, what is he inviting you and I to do? He is referring to the journey of sonship. If you and I are to be imitators of Christ, is to live in such a way that isn't about uh, control and power. It's about humility and self-sacrifice and responsiveness to our Heavenly Father. This is his genius plan to bring the whole world under the authority of God through raising up sons and daughters to be responsive to their Heavenly Father. And he says, if you have a question of how to do that, look at me. Come follow me. Do what I do. And I only do what I see the Father doing. And if you live that way, you will be in right relationship with your Father and the kingdom of God will extend through you. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, it describes this. And uh, it's packed. We, we won't go through it in depth, but it, it just gives such a wonderful summary. For those who are led, now what did we say? Come follow me. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, that's the Spirit of Jesus, are the children of God, sons and daughters of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Remember what we said the enemy, uh, uh, our enemy is. It's oppression by evil rulers, most notably ourselves. And that the, the Bible story is to find a better life leader. So, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, and listen to this, co-heirs with Christ. As we follow in his steps, and we're going to learn more about his salvation in the coming weeks, but as we follow in his steps... All that was bestowed upon Christ is somehow we participate in that. Shocking. The Bible describes you and I, get this, heirs of the world. I mean, I don't know if you think this way, but you're going to inherit not like a million dollars. You're going to inherit the world. So just, it's kind of worth waiting for, right? If, now here's the if, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now remember that, that journey. What's that journey? That's the journey of suffering. And as we participate in crucifying, killing our self-serving agendas 
being our own life leader, as we lay that down and share in the sufferings, we also share in his glory. So here's the point. What if slavery, slavery to fear, uh, most of us here, if you're anything like me, I'm a slave to fear. Uh, every day of my life, I am resisting the anxiety that feels like a wave that washes over me. Every day. I, 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 I look at my children, I long to be a good father, and I feel overwhelmed with my inadequacy. I feel afraid that I'll fail. I look at my own faithfulness to God and I'm afraid that I won't be good enough. Slave to fear, a slave to addiction. How many of you here today, if you were honest with yourself, would describe yourself as being addicted to pornography? Addicted to a substance? Addicted to a video game? If you were honest with yourself? Slave to it. A slave to image. How much of your day is spent counting calories, counting steps? How you're going to fit in another workout? You maybe didn't have time to read your Bible, but you make sure you're getting your steps. A slave to self-image. Of course, it's all for the glory of God, and he wants us to be healthy, right? So what if slavery to fear, to addiction, to image, self-image, are signs of following an oppressive leader who consumes more and more of our time, more and more of our attention? Um, Jonathan was, uh, had us listen to this um, address by somebody, uh, uh, that somebody gave to a graduating class, and I, I won't quote it well today. But I remember the idea that if we are, uh, if we are slaves to self-image, we will never ever feel thin enough or fit enough. It'll never quite be enough. If you're a slave to pornography, you will have to engage in more and more intense and perverted images to have the same arousal, never ever being enough. And if you're married, then expecting your spouse to engage in those kinds of things. Shame on you. It'll never be enough. Whatever you give yourself to and have enslaved yourself to, it will never ever satisfy because it's an oppressive ruler that's destined not, that's designed not to fulfill you but to consume you, to use you up for their agenda. What if the oppression, the slavery that's in our life is not because we're not fit enough or because we don't have enough self-control or because we haven't figured out how to manage our anxiety, taking some classes on it perhaps, 
But what if our freedom is found in living in response to our Heavenly Father? What if these signs of oppression are not meant to be defeated through negotiation, but through crucifixion and finding a better leader? Uh, I went out with a I went out last night to watch um, the darkest hour, the story of Winston Churchill. Uh, I really recommend the movie. It was incredible. And uh, I'm not much of a historian, but the, uh, the prime minister in power before Churchill was intent on negotiating with Hitler terms of peace. And uh, Winston Churchill was not a subtle person. And he says, uh, negotiating with Hitler is like negotiating with a tiger uh, who has your head in his mouth. You're in no position to negotiate. And he will only consume you. Um, I'm afraid that our life has become so complicated, not because we are not smart enough or we don't work hard enough, but it's we've not because, but I think it's because we've not understood what's really going on, and that these signs of oppression are because we're not submitted. We're not obedient to, submitted our will to, our Heavenly Father. And maybe if we were defined by Him, it wouldn't matter what your pant size is or how many steps you've done in a day. Maybe the ability to turn off your phone or the computer would be simpler because you're now living in response to a better life leader. I'm, uh, I'm presently uh, writing a, a second book. The first one was on relational theology. Uh, this one is on relationally how to grow, how to change, how to be transformed into the image of Christ. And uh, it's really embarrassing when you are writing a book and the punchline of the book is that change is a mystery. I have been uh, devoting years and years, I've read hundreds of books on the subject of how change occurs, and I've reached a conclusion. Uh, change occurs by the gracious hand of our Father on our life. That's my conclusion. You don't have to read the book now. <laughs> Save you some time. I really believe this. I believe that we need to work hard. I believe if we follow Christ, we'll suffer. I really believe that. But all of those true things are somehow wrapped inside being a son or daughter of our Heavenly Father and living in response to Him. And sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's painful. But what it always is, is having our face turned towards Him. And in that context, we find ourselves following Christ because that's what Christ did and modeled for us. 
to be turned toward the Father and to live in response to him and thereby being free from all that oppresses, all that, steal, that steals, kills, and destroys. So in conclusion, and if we can have the worship team come up, those who are serving communion, uh, you can start to distribute the elements. Are you on the journey of sonship? Now, just focus on me. Two more minutes. In any given day, would you say that what's defining your life is being responsive to your Heavenly Father? Is that what's going on? Um, for me, I know that I, I'm cheating because I'm a pastor. I remember, uh, I remember working in an auto body shop. I remember being a high school teacher. I remember doing construction. How do I live in response to my father in those places? When I'm not working and I'm lonely and bored, what am I doing in those places? Am I living in response? Am I on a journey of sonship? Are you on a journey of becoming a daughter? And what if that's the primary thing that needs to be going on in our life? Not managing the symptoms of living under an oppressive ruler, but finding a better ruler and living under their leadership and their authority and living in response to them. What if we are trying to tame the tiger with our head in its mouth. And what if, that's, what if that's not the way out? Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to be led by Christ's example, being almighty God, having every reason to live independently and to self-manage, says, I only do what I see my Father doing. Would you please simplify our life by making it a response to you? For those here today who have not decided to let you be their life leader, I ask that you would give them the grace now to say yes to a better leader, to give up control, to give up the illusion of independence, to realize that they are following Satan, their true father, and that there is a better father who invites with love and humility to be their life leader. Would you give them the grace to be able to say yes to you? For those of us who say that we're Christians, would you give us the grace to see those places in our lives where sonship or being a daughter has not defined us? We're busy managing our life 
making excuses, working hard at being good, but not working through being submissive. Clarify what's really going on. And thank you for Jesus being the example of a life lived in responsiveness to you.